And welcome to today's episode of The Enthusiast and Co. Today I was joined by the wonderful Emily Garland, who is the founder of Made of Gingerbread. Uh, and her business is exactly as magic as you'd expect from that name. Um, I won't give you any spoilers, but Emily proclaimed herself to be the queen of niche in this episode. And that is absolutely categorically a, good, a correct title to give herself. Um, she, Her interests are so broad and so varied, but her love for each one is so palpable. Um, she's just incredible. She really takes life by the horn, so it was a pleasure to chat to her, um, especially as somebody who uh, self-proclaimedly has no hobbies whatsoever. (laughs) Um, So it's really lovely to chat to Emily, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hello, Emily Garland. Hello. I full-named you. Did you like that? Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Did you panic? (laughs) Were you like, yes, hello, yes? Um, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, Can you tell people where you are recording from? Yeah, I don't mean like you don't have to give them like a geographic like square coordinate. I'm not <laughs> suggesting people need to come and like barrage down your doors. Well, um, if even if they did that, I could move away because um, I'm on my houseboat, which is oh currently God. in Islington, but it moves. So yeah, if you try this and is... find me, I can run away. <laughs> <laughs> this is partially my naivety that I'm showing up here, but you, I didn't realise actual people lived on houseboats. Obviously I did, <laughs> but I never thought I'd come upon somebody who lived in a houseboat and it is an absolute joy. Every time you share something about Reg or tell me about Reg, I'm just filled with gratitude at me being able to experience this vicariously through you. Thanks. I mean, it is a really amazing thing and I uh, I would highly recommend it. It's in my opinion, better than land. But um, I think all boat people think that. Uh, whoa, whoa, Emily, stop <laughs> the controversy. We're less than a minute in. You can't be firing out these kind of opinions. We're all trying to be friends here. <laughs> well, um, it's good that not everyone's on the water. It keeps it for us, you know. Um, land that's people have their place, it's fine. <laughs> that's true. And then uh, land people can Everything just be, so be friends with you, oh, vicariously live through you, and then <laughs> yeah, exactly. sit on the land. Come and sit on the boat when you want to, and then... Uh, I can come to your oh, if you insist, Emily. <laughs> Especially if the weather keeps on like this. Anyway, more than you are, uh, you are. A, a, what's the opposite of a land person? A boat person? A water no, person? So. Yeah, boat dweller. Yeah, boat dweller. I love that. Well, other than being a boat dweller, could you tell everyone a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so I run uh, something called Made of Gingerbread, um, which is basically um, me making three D gingerbread structures for various things um mostly nowadays i make big one-off bespoke gingerbread sort of buildings and replicas of stuff for christmas events or installations window displays that kind of stuff and then i also do workshops to teach other people about biscuit building um and yeah a few other bits but yeah that's me and it's just the best thing i mean this is similar to the boat thing like i i think i knew people out there were were built gingerbread things but I never thought that I would in my real life know a person who did that as a job like it's just the best thing ever um how did you get in, how did you get into the line of being a what so what do you call yourself because you're not you think of yourself more as an engineer than a baker don't you because um you said in an interview recently that kind of your material is always the same and it's more the the challenge for you is more kind of figuring out how it all fits together yeah so I just um I think I sort of accidentally got into it, which sounds ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I've always liked making things. So basically, that is that is quite a logical progression. So I used to make stuff for fun and I make stuff for my job, which does happen in a lot of different areas of stuff. But 
mine happens to be edible so I kind of see it like that way around because I'm no in no way like an expert baker in general I would be awful on bake-off because I only know basically I think you would be excellent (laughs) like you know baking prowess aside I think you are the exact kind of character that the entire nation would be behind like I feel like after week one they'd be like I want Emily to win thanks I I would but I would drop out whatever week comes after biscuit week (laughs) 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 you'd be like the first person ever to be the biggest star baker across the board on biscuit week and then fail catastrophically the rest of the week yeah it would just be nightmarish like don't ask me to make bread it's not my bag um well I was telling you before we press record that I am coming to you live (laughs) after just having tried some experimental hot cross buns by which I mean they failed so Paul I've got words with Paul Hollywood as well so if you want to go on like tag team and just really have a go at him I'm up for that yeah no that'd be fine um (laughs) I rely on other bakers to make bread for me so yeah well I mean fair enough so that segues nicely into our first question which is what are you enthusiastic about at work Lots of things. Um, I am, some might say, overly passionate about the idea. Nobody will say that. Nobody nice will say that. (laughs) Um, Biscuit building is my main um, passion and the thing I'm most enthusiastic about. And it does surprise me that it isn't more of a thing that people do in general. I think, why would you make cupcakes and decorate them when you could build something out of biscuits? Um, So, yeah, that's my my main form of enthusiasm at work is the building stuff side of stuff and I love translating designs into edible forms and using different edible materials to try and come up with new ways of doing stuff um and I'm really so yeah I, obviously I'm really enthusiastic about trying to get other people excited about it as well that's my main sort of thing that drives me at work I guess um, I feel like I feel like you're underselling yourself. Let's just zoom out. So when we talk when we talk about biscuit building, obviously everyone has done a gingerbread building at Christmas, whatever. But let, you're, the scale of yours, you've built a literal like actual life size house that people can go in, haven't you? Yeah, it like, was a, it was a crazy one. That's not the not, but yeah, um, I do think that it's a fun area that has loads of challenges in it, and I think that. Like I get excited about doing that kind of level of stuff now and I love making massive replicas of things and really detailed replicas of stuff. Um but I want to encourage people to just sort of make yeah, make a house at Christmas, but why make a house? Why don't you make anything else? You can do so many things with it. Um it isn't just the scale that gets me excited, it's more just the sort of trying to do new stuff. That's my real passion. It's such an insight into your mind that you are that, that is the kind of the way it works, that it's because like you know anybody who follows you on Instagram will know that so many different things inspire you and you do now kind of think in gingerbread don't you which is a cliche but also it's definitely true like the amount of times I see you see a building and you go god that look great in gingerbread I like absolutely love it it's just changed my brain over time I just can't help it now it is odd like I do genuinely <laughs> accidentally just look at things differently because of it I think it's the same in loads of different people's jobs but mine's just such a weird job like I think filmmakers can't quite watch a film as a normal punter ever again that kind of thing yeah. it's that but it's so niche and bizarre <laughs> it's just like I imagine things made out of icing and how I would pipe the specific type of window or then turrets and stuff um yeah it's a weird side effect. <laughs> what's the um what's your favorite thing that you've ever baked or made oh it's tricky that's always a tricky question I I think it changes over time I'm such a I'm always so excited by basically the latest thing I've done that yeah. actually yeah it tends to always be that so at the moment the sort of fairly recent Christmas stuff that I got to do this year some of those were were kind of bucket list stuff from my perspective I got to do the Waldorf Hotel which has been on my I've got a little 
geeky list of buildings I want to recreate and that was on there so I got to tick it off which was really exciting um and Dennis Seaver's house in in Spitalfields so that's like yeah they're my top oh my god yes here. you taught me about Dennis Seaver's house which I had never shame on me had never heard of before so I can't believe it much. exists and I mean that in a good way like it's no, just such an amazing it's, thing it's incredible that it exists and um yeah it's a fab place and it's such a hidden gem absolutely love it and you do um you do downloadables and workshops as well don't you so could you talk a bit more about kind of what yeah like what you want how you want to encourage people to be building stuff out of biscuits other than obviously just looking at yours and drooling and can I also just say on record I did not like gingerbread until I met you and then I didn't tell you that for ages because I was like oh this is embarrassing this is her life I'm gonna just break her heart I don't know why I thought I was so important in your life Emily that I was like you know everyone that doesn't like gingerbread in the world me not liking it is really going to crush her and change her entire business model um your gingerbread is delicious like I Oh, there's a I I know I've told you this story before, but for the for the sake of the listeners, <laughs> who I've probably also told the story before because I love this story. I um one Christmas I got some biscuits from from you for my clients, didn't I? And I picked them up, and then you oh, yeah. were panicky and wild. Still very lovely, but quite you know frenetic. And you were, do you like some biscuits? And I was like, Emily, why else would I be here? Yeah. And um, you had a, a big box of vodka, <laughs> and I took some home. And my boyfriend, who is the most horizontal, laid back man going, um, I went out somewhere and came back, and then he was like, "Ellie, we've got a serious situation." I had never seen him look so rage, and I was like, "Oh my god, what has happened?" And he was like, "I am fucking obsessed with those fucking gingerbread biscuits in the walk." And I was like, "Oh my god, she's created a monster." <laughs> Dangerous. Yeah, I mean that is that is Christmas time. Um, I'm spending my whole time trying to offload off cuts on people. Um, what a nightmare. Uh, very I know it's really tragic for the rest of us I have to say <laughs> yeah sorry yes but teaching other before I went off on that tangent oh, yeah. teaching other people about biscuit building yes so I well odd circumstances currently um but I did just launch real life workshops where people can come to my studio in East London and learn one sort of one-on-one or in small groups of how I build out of biscuit and gingerbread um which is really exciting um, but also I do downloadable kits so they're totally digital and it has um, sort of printable templates for the whatever it is and then my recipe with all my top tips of how to do it properly um, and then decoration ideas and a link to a video of me doing it if you get stuck that kind of thing um, which is quite cool um, so I'm going to be adding to those but then I've also got a really exciting thing that's launching in a few months um, mm. which will expand all of that and make it more exciting thing um it's so i think because gingerbread is so bound up with like obviously with sorry to bring it up with christmas um and (laughs) like you know that kind of communal aspect and joy and warm and coziness and i think it's so lovely that you love it so much like it's not a commercial decision for you it's because you genuinely love it and i think that comes across so much when you are at your workshops or when you download your stuff because all of the extras you can just tell that it is your absolute passion which i really really love because i think it would be such a shame if this was to be taken and commercialized and made you know by somebody who just didn't have the love for it that you do thank you yeah I do think that um that does definitely drive all my business decisions more than the sort of financial side and the other businessy type approaches because I could have I mean I could have easily gone down a different path and ended up basically now being the manager of a biscuit factory that was quite successful but that's sort of never what I wanted and I always knew that um so it's more about doing what I love and getting other people involved that's the only I have to thing. say like if you just if you say if some random person stopped me on the street and said do you think a manager of a biscuit factory is a cool job I'd be like hell yeah but only but I I still just don't it sounds cool but when you think about what that mm. job actually involves you never 
get I mean you'll never even smell the biscuits if you're quite <laughs> you'll get further, further away it would just is the opposite of what I want I could just go, we're, not, we're not gonna be near the creativity or the actual biscuits or any of it and that's just crazy to me um I mean I you have you have convinced me I, f- I feel like I'm I'm secure now in the knowledge that you did assess this and weigh this up at the time and that the biscuit smelling is a real issue and I'm with you on that one <laughs> Um, speaking about general kind of creativity, you are also you are the queen of a hobby and a uh, kind of extracurricular skill. Um, what are you enthusiastic about in play? It's all yeah. I mean, every aspect of my life's a bit niche, isn't it? When you start listing, it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, um, so it's something that I've done for sort of crazily over half my life now. Um, I studied Balinese percussion. Um, and I've been playing it every week since 2001 it's absolutely incredible that's such a long time um but I absolutely love it it's my thing um I hobby. and there's a group in London a group of us we rehearse every week and we have gigs and stuff um and I lived in Indonesia for a while to study it out there which is absolutely awesome um yeah and that's my main hobby I used to play other types of music like classical piano and oboe and stuff um but my main thing nowadays is that it's called gamelan and it's did you pick um, it up in indonesia or did you learn it before you went to indonesia no no i learned well you know i only ended up living in indonesia because of it it was the other way around so ah. I, studied, I did a music a general music degree and then off but while i was there i discovered indonesian music because they had a group as part of my university and the instruments mm-hmm. lived there um and so i got really into it during my course and then um after I graduated the guy who runs the London Gamelan group is also the lecturer of my university so I knew him and he tends to invite keen graduates um on and off each year um to join the London group so that's how I got into that and then we had a visiting musical director from Bali come over and while he was over he let me know he told me about this scholarship scheme through the embassy where you get ludicrously uh you get paid to go to indonesia and play music every day in bali oh my god so i applied because he suggested i might go for it and i applied and got it and went i utterly sort of hadn't planned that had a job you know i was fully it's sort of a couple of years after i graduated and i was sort of you know i had a had a place to live in london and i was getting into my kind of working and living in london life and then suddenly went off to indonesia for a year and um, Look, when fate calls you're asked to move to a beautiful tropical country and you're paid to learn an instrument you love you've got to go with fate haven't yeah, you really I feel like... that's a hardship <laughs> did you spawn out of the office like bye-bye I'll see yeah. you in a year or sand and playing music <laughs> yeah and then yeah just had the time of my life and that's sort of continued the passion ever since um and I went back what, again so what... finally this year as well to see my teacher and everyone and it was great didn't you end up playing in a Balinese wedding? Oh, that happens all the time out there. It's so it's so ridiculous and relaxed. So the main vibe is the more people, the merrier. So even if uh-huh. you don't know them, if you're having a wedding or a funeral or anything that's sort of like a gathering, um, the idea is that it's much better and more auspicious if you just have more people. So it's just a kind of free-for-all in a sense, but also um, it means that, while while I was out there even if I had a really vague link to someone or my teacher was playing for someone's wedding it would just be you they wouldn't even check you'd just get invited and then turn up and then my teacher would be like cool now it's your turn and then you'd end up just 
yeah, playing on a stage with mic mics up and yeah, really bizarre when you think about it from kind of our perspective of how weddings are over here and it's really different in that sense so I ended up so I hadn't I sort of forgotten that that was the case when I went back this year and I'd honestly he just invited me to a wedding and I thought as a nice sort of thing um to sort of sit in the in the congregation bit and and enjoy it all and stuff and I was really grateful to be invited and I'd totally forgotten that was the thing until <laughs> until I was listening to him play with one of his latest students and they were performing. And then we got chatting and we were sitting on the same sort of stagey bit. And then he was like, come on, like play that. Let's play that piece that we did last week. And I was like, oh, God, I totally like <laughs> wasn't prepared. But it's always the way. And it's kind of a really nice a bit of a buzz to play when you haven't prepared at all. It makes it more exciting in that sense, because... You haven't got your, you haven't got time to get nervous about it. You're just suddenly doing it, and that's a crazy thing to be suddenly doing. Um, but it's a lovely oh my thing. God. So. And how lovely is all that they that the the kind of cultural norm is that you do just invite them all the merrier. Because I mean, for weddings, I do get that, but also for funerals, I think that's so yeah. lovely. In a in a weird way, it's it's a really lovely way to remember someone by inviting the entire community and inviting people you don't know and bringing people together. That's such a lovely way of it honoring. Is so amazing. And when you go to one of the sort of bigger ones where they're sort of um, so the the kind of um more well known um people in a community um will have sort of bigger uh bigger things for their cremation ceremony it'll be sort of more and more over the top and elaborate and like if a sort of um a really high up person dies then they do things like they build these incredibly tall towers that go on the kind of thing that gets processed along with the body in it um and sometimes I'm not sure if this is still the case. I think it probably is, but in, definitely in the past, they've cut down telephone wires in order to get, in order for this to be able to be processed through the streets because it's so tall. That kind of oh thing. My like God. it's a priority. It's rather, it's sort of incredible. Um, and they are, like the, the cremation ceremonies are something else. They're absolutely extraordinary. Um, yeah. And I, God, yeah. Liz Gilbert didn't know she was born when she went to Bali, did she? Oh, <laughs> I hope she got to see one because they are amazing. God. And that- so you slipped in, you slipped in Balinese gamelan, you slipped in the oboe, you slipped in or uh, the piano, whatever else you played, but you also do Kayleys, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that kind of is, um, stems from more of the oboe playing because basically I've got this little Kaylee band that was set up. It's my kind of home friends, so people I've known since school. And we all used to play in little orchestras together and stuff um, back then. And we decided... We I like that you offered that by as if that explained it. Like, oh, yeah, just my home friend. Like, I've known some people since I was born. None of us have played in the Kaylee together. Really. <laughs> well, it's because we played in orchestras together. So we know each other through music and things. Um, and they were talking about setting up a kind of a, a folk band and playing for Kayleys and having little Kayleys for our friends and family, which we started off doing kind of once a year at Christmas when everyone's back home. My because I grew up kind of near the countryside some of my friends parents have farms and barns and stuff so it makes a logical place to have Kayleys which is really nice so we started doing it and I because I played the oboe the sort of tin whistle is quite an easy instrument to pick up from scratch if you've already played a really similar wind instrument so that's how I got started in that but nowadays actually I mainly call instead of playing so there's always like a kind of a caller well for Kayleys in England rather than Scotland where everyone knows what they're doing um you'll often have 
a caller who's who's calling the moves out to all the dancers to let them know what's coming next or to teach basically teaching the dance at the beginning of each one before it gets properly people have got it down and then you can pick up an instrument and join in but yeah that's the thing it's a really fun thing I'm really not um into dancing in general I never have been but there's something about Kaylee's because because everyone it like levels the playing field because you're all doing yeah. the same moves it's so much more fun to me um and yeah but the the uh, irony is of course like lots of things now that I've got into Kaylee's to the extent that I'm calling in a band I never get to dance anymore <laughs> but um oh, no. it make you can't smell different. the Kaylee <laughs> it's fine and I really love it um yeah I think Kayleys aren't like then you're you're right about they're not performative are they I mean they are but I mean like people aren't in them to outshine they're in there because it's fun and it's a feeling of it's like hilarious in a great way exactly and you cannot get sort of you never get show-offs because if you're showing off it means you're doing it wrong like Mm. you're doing the same as everyone else and the only options are you get you're getting it right or you're kind of getting it wrong and if you're getting it wrong everyone's just having a laugh and there's just no it's just such a positive atmosphere and it really is one of the loveliest things I especially love them at weddings because out of all of the kind of dancing it's the only thing where basically everyone gets involved so you have like four-year-olds dancing with 84-year-olds whereas yeah as, soon as the disco starts grandma tends to go home and so you end up with like disparate groups of people um but Kaylee I think it's a great thing is it intentional do you think that a lot of Kayleys involve like mixing partners because with a lot of them they kind of you go along you you routinely change partners with each move don't you because of the way the dance works do you reckon that's deliberate yeah. to get people mixing or is that just the way it is it probably is because it's so, like such a social thing um yeah and that's one of the other reasons it's so nice because like you know if you don't know many people at a wedding you're definitely not going to be dancing so enthusiastically are you at the disco whereas um yeah Kayleys they're the way. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylee's are the way. You heard it here first. <laughs> have a Kaylee. Have gingerbread. Live on a boat. I, I mean, my manifesto is pretty clear. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm on board with it. Emily for PM. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also a fan of a pub quiz, aren't you? Just to round off the uh, the hobbies. In a, in, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how you have enough spare time, Emily. But Well, I end up we normally. Well, we're in lockdown now, which is utterly bizarre, obviously, for everyone. But for me, like... I am never at home normally I just do social things every day um so yeah that's how I end up fitting it in um I go <laughs> pub quiz every Monday um and it is more that because I'm not I don't have a very broad range of knowledge as we've discussed all of my stuff's pretty niche and it's sort of 100% of the time gamelan questions do not come up in pub quizzes <laughs> sort of 100% <laughs> I was trying to think if it has ever happened. And I think once in a pub quiz, there was one question about Javanese batik and that was it. And I knew the answer because I was like, okay, my Indonesian. Yeah, that is quite a niche pub quiz, I have to say. Once ever. Anyway. um, So, and I'm not just one of those people who can rattle off Oscar winners or any of that. So I am actually, from from other people's perspective, quite a useless person to have in a pub quiz. But I bring, (laughs) what I bring to the table is enthusiasm good spelling and um, general morale boosting um, <laughs> I, I, I keep the thing going and I can I can kind of um I just think it's really fun it's such, such a fun way of of hanging out with people and learning stuff like I do love the learning side of it so you know you and I would be such a useless pub quiz team because those are exactly the things I bring to yeah, the yeah. table as well. Like you, we would not score highly, but we'd be having a right old time in the back. Which is sort of the point, although I do have 
like a little bit of comp- competitive side, which, you know, it's very handy to be on a team where everyone else is actually really knowledgeable because then sometimes <laughs> you get to win, even though you're not like <laughs> you've really got this locked down you've you've honed this over years I feel well there's this sort of like um because we've got involved with this particular pub quiz and it's sort of evolved into thing we do regularly um like such this is such a good illustration of what I bring to the table there was um they tell you the theme for next there's always a specialist round at the beginning and they tell you the theme for the next week at the week before um, and they did a special Halloween one, and we and we were told that there'd be one bonus point for each team that came in fancy dress for Halloween. And I didn't write right. this on my list, but fancy dress is another thing I'm very enthusiastic about. And so my team, <laughs> they they were in their instant reaction. Every single other person on the team's instant reaction was, "Let's not worry about that point. I don't want to wear fancy dress." And my reaction yeah. was. I will do everything I can to get that one point. So I made them promise me that if I took it upon myself entirely to make costumes for everyone in the team, that they would wear them and we could get the point. And so I had the time of my life cutting up paper (laughs) in the pub before people arrived and sellotaping them together and cutting the bottom to make it look like a ghost and cutting the eyes out. And then everyone arrived and I handed them their ghost costume and they hated it and I loved it. Oh, it was great that is that is, that really paints a picture yeah and there's a photo and they all look at it so oh, it's so ridiculous they all look very slightly like miffed ghosts and then there's me absolutely loving it on the end <laughs> I, I'm sold. I, want, I mean I hate fancy dress as it goes so but I would if, for you Emily I would be a ghost in a pub in oh, central right. London I'd do it for you thank you um, that's actually that was another thing you didn't put fancy dress down but you did say general mm. creativity just kind of crafting and I know you've got you're doing embroidery at the moment aren't you during lockdown yeah I tend to sort of when I have time I still like to kind of keep busy um, and so I really love like little crafty projects I've always got something on the go I got really into sort of making collages years ago I used to make collages all the time and now I discovered my um, grandma's old embroidery kit which is really lovely and so I've just been sort of randomly teaching myself embroidery and not doing it properly, but that's not my aim. Um, so, yeah, I kind of basically have been sitting and instead of doodling, doodling with thread. And it takes up, it's a really nice thing, I think, to um, at the moment, because I haven't got access to my piano or my gamelan instrument. It's the kind of time I would normally spend playing those. I need yeah. the same kind of outlet and I get the same sort of thing from doing something like embroidery or I sewed some bunting the other day by hand, which took a like, nice amount of time. I think it's the, the kind of the ideal thing when you need to calm down and calm your brain down is to have a distraction that's challenging enough that it fully takes all your attention, but not challenging that it's stressful. You know, it's that really nice, kind of medium level of intensity which I find is really yeah. well that's what I get from playing music because you you're concentrating so hard I'm going to get the reading the music and and playing it nicely and all that um and I think it's been that's been filling that hole since we've been on lockdown which is nice are you are you competitive with your not like with your not with your um performing hobbies necessarily but kind of with the more crafty insular activities are you still competitive with those because I feel like with your obviously because you are 
for all intents and purposes, an architect. That's got to be meticulous. It's very mathematical. It's it has to be precise or it literally can all crumble. Whereas with the more kind of artistic um, hobbies like embroidery, I'm not that obviously they are highly skilled, but they don't necessarily have to be as brilliantly precise are you yeah, are no, you still really precise with them or no, do you enjoy the freedom no I really enjoy the fact that it doesn't matter yeah definitely mm. yeah it's the opposite I think that's probably partly why I enjoy it is that it's a total freedom um yeah. and it doesn't matter what you do and then and yeah. yeah no I don't feel competitive with it at all like I make things and they look silly but I don't mind um because <laughs> I've really enjoyed doing it um and I make sort of you know I have no I've never really built up my sewing skills frustratingly um I was set to finally go back to my parents house and have my mum teach me the beginnings of dressmaking this but just before sort of, we were booked in to do it in March and so then lockdown happened and my parents were in their late 70s so there was no chance of me going but um after all this that's on the list because I have no sewing skills really at all um so in the th- in the past I have made very sort of quite rudimentary sewing things like little purses and things that don't last because I haven't done it properly but it doesn't bother me that I haven't you know I know where my yeah. skills are and it's just a nice release it's not I don't do it for that yeah not do you come from a very crafty family yeah I guess so yeah I um so my dad's a retired architect my mum's a retired mm-hmm. music teacher but she is of that kind of she grew up making everything you know she when she yeah. was at school dressmaking was a, one of the subjects and mm. cookery and all that so definitely yeah my grandmothers both of them my my dad's mum was a really amazing painter and my mum's mum was like excellent sort of embroiderer she made tapestry work and things um and amazingly yeah my mum made loads of macrame back in the day and she sent me in the post I'm really excited she sent me her 1970 published um book about macrame it's so funny how oh, oh God, how do you do? so it's a proper vintage book about in black and white images of uh, all the different things you can make and it's so exactly what you see in shops at the moment it's really funny isn't it it's um, so funny. Well, Just the well, only the only reason I ask about your family yeah. is because um in I feel like I've, I've heard in an interview or something when you said that you originally got into gingerbread because you were making a birthday cake or something, but you were attempting like a big top circus cake and there was something to do with like you were looking through your family's baking tins or recipes or old photos or something and it's just uh, not many people I would wager would be baking a birthday cake and the, the frame of reference I had was their family's big top circus cake that's <laughs> that was the only reason I asked <laughs> well that was my design so that was sort of the first thing that I came up with but it was based on the fact that um my I was looking through a lot of my mum's party cake books, for example. We were big fans of Jane Asher in my house. And um God, who isn't? Well, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> and then we had these well, my mum still has them, the templates that we used as a family to make the gingerbread house at Christmas, like lots of people do. Um but then I also have one for my birthday because my birthday's in January and I really liked gingerbread. And it is obviously <laughs> that because I would never put those two things together until I've been running the business for like over a year. And I actually realised that I had a gingerbread house as my birthday cake when I was five. And I also insisted on doing it on my own when I was 16 and had people have a gingerbread house for my birthday cake. And I totally forgotten that that was. (laughs) So, you know, weird, isn't it? And then you look back and you were like, oh, yeah, it all makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So funny. And then kind of wider so like the the third question is what you enthusiastic about in life which I know seems quite existential but it's only because I unlike you have no hobbies and so I really <laughs> dislike the I really dislike the question what are your hobbies even though you 
answered bountifully and beautifully um so the difference between what you enthusiastic about in play and in life is life is kind of like wider overarching um longer term kind of things and mm. you've put music making which we've discussed obviously with your plethora of incredible instruments um but also can we talk a bit about boat life yes I mean I always love talking about boat life um <laughs> I think lots of people who move onto the water get really obsessed with it um and I definitely am and the, but the reason one of the main reasons I love it so much isn't the actual specific nature of, of living on a boat and all the things that come with that. It's more that there's this amazing community of people and I've become really, yeah, just really grateful for that. And it's such a big part of my life, mainly because of that. So before I moved onto the boat, I'd lived in London for car since 2001, so like 18 years. And had only very occasionally very rarely sort of met my neighbours and hardly knew them sometimes I sort of vaguely got to know them but I moved house loads and I never really got that sense of being part of a community and then sort of within weeks of moving onto the water you just become part of this incredible group of people who have this really strange thing in common but it's such a fundamental thing um I think that's partly why I became so into it and I think the the things that you get from living on a boat are sort of all the things I wanted but I didn't realize until I did it I think it taps into loads of the things that I need and like like sort of little bits of DIY I've always been my back I yes. love doing little practical projects and things like that and boats are the perfect place because there's always something that needs fixing or doing or you know you can change things up I never thought I'd own my own home this is sort of the only way that I could do that which is absolutely mm-hmm. incredible, makes me incredibly happy and feel secure because I was renting and moving so often and I couldn't bear it. Um, and then just the moving around and getting to see loads of different places and being fully in control of a thing, like it gives you so much independence. Like I could move to Bristol, but I could take my house with me. It's so lovely to have that as a fundamental part of your living space. Um and it is really, I love small spaces and I always have. And I've been obsessed with the tiny narrow boats on the water way before I thought about owning one. Um, I just used to go for walks along the canal all the time and I was always just like, oh my God, that one's so cute. Like, I love that. Um, and just, uh, yeah, having your own thing. It's just really, yeah, I don't know, really awesome. I love it a lot. Um, I um, I loved on at Christmas you were telling me all about the... You were reading a book about some like iconic oh God, boat so woman. Um, <laughs> the Anna the Boat Women. It's the best. Yes. Oh my God, I love it so much. <laughs> um, I just I learned so yeah. much from that. And like you were saying about kind of the boats that go up and down and um, sell coal. And I just I'd never thought about it because like obviously you know when you when as you say when you walk along the canal kind of because we both lived in you still do live in Islington. I used to live in Islington. When you walk along that canal, there does seem to be such a community. You know, people are out, people are chatting, people are enjoying themselves. But I didn't realize quite how deep that community went until you were telling me about that book and about the history and about how the community kind of is in real life and I just think it's incredible yeah I just think I totally fell in love with it and I there's yeah so this book is written it's basically the memoir of one of these incredible women who in the second world war took on managing of uh one of the sort of coal boats um on her own in the end she sort of got trained up um and then ended up training a lot of other women to do that work during the war um and it's about her life and 
but written by her and very modest and ridiculous so she just achieved so many amazing things and but I love the connection with history and things you get just by being on the water the fact that you get literally this morning I had a gas delivery by these guys there's only really kind of four fuel boats in London so you get to know the people really well over time and the job they do is so incredible but also it's such a huge bit of London history and other cities in in the UK because they've been going for hundreds of years it's ridiculous yeah. some of those boats are 150 years old it's so awesome um that actually yeah. like my brain hurts a bit trying to contemplate that that's insane it's insane and great and I, I think it's part of the thing and then that's all part of this community thing and and the idea that you can live completely on your own and at the moment what a stark sort of realization of how I do live completely on my own which is tough at the moment but it would be way worse if I was in a studio flat in a block of people where I'd never met my neighbors and I then the fact that you just have this connection with other people like and yeah I don't know it's just this really great bit of sort of London and the world I think um and I guess with what you were saying about like you know boats being really good kind of like projects because there's always something else that needs doing to it I guess you're it's probably more apparent than ever you know with your boat that other people have lived in before and he's had kind of like stories before you do you know much about the people who lived in the boat before you did yeah well yeah a bit so I really like there's a kind of tradition with my boat where he's had a kind of history of solo boat women who refer to him as a he which is quite controversial because boats are supposed to be female Uh, but he's called Reg and and before me there was a girl called Laura who I now know really well we became friends since I bought her boat and she's got a new boat now I see her around on the water Um, and so through her I've heard about the woman before her who owned it but we've never actually met but we've we know of each other because of Laura and then I know of the one before her as well but we've never met either Um, and they are all still on the water as far as I know in different boats um but the guy who actually built it originally I only know little bits about him but just by living on the boat you can learn about that guy because he um was really into woodwork to the point where (laughs) wood everywhere and I mean everywhere like (laughs) it's it's like it's got that kind of uh it's got pine everywhere which I before I moved on I thought wouldn't be my thing but it's just the feel of the boat you end up falling in love with it and you don't want to change it in case it feels soulless so I'm I've got very used to wood being everywhere but instead of it just being tongue and groove and quite an intense level of wooden finish everywhere he's just put extra bits in the corners up by the <laughs> decorative bits of wood wherever you look there's random decorative bits of wood like I'm looking at my bookshelf at the moment I've got one bookshelf which is like high up and under the bookshelf for no reason the brackets have extra bits of wood on them like I love it and then he also but the way he designed it um is really clever so I, I'm re- a big fan of whoever did build it um the storage is amazing and things it's very very cleverly done but also when you look in you kind of have to access the engine bay sometimes when you're sorting stuff out in there and you can see the inside of the hull at the, at the back and he well he welded a heart into the metal Oh my I know so it has the year that it was finished and then it has a heart welded underneath I like that he loved metal up until that point he was actually like, oh, I'm gonna make a really significant thing with metal then wood. yeah very cool um yeah I love that there's there's always a history of um 
when you move on to a boat because most of them most people don't move on to a brand new one so yeah there's that as well I guess it's a really nice connection to people and uh, that was a not an intentional segue but we're just <laughs> smashing them out because you're the other thing you put for what you're enthusiastic about in life is feminism and I think that seems very fitting considering you are now living on a boat that has a history of very strong solo women on the water um could you talk yeah. a bit about that I do I do think it's sort of um it is just something I'm passionate about and general like you know equality and and tolerance and things it's um I just think it's so important and it's something that I'm always working on I think like lots of people um I spend I thought yeah I think I appreciate it from a personal perspective I'm so grateful for living in the time that we do in terms of some of the progress we have made and the fact that I can live perfectly happily on my own and be completely independent as a woman um which wasn't the case until relatively recently in history um Mm -hmm. but also I think I'm always learning about how to be more tolerant in general and areas of life and other people's experiences that I don't personally have um and I sort of yeah I've always felt quite strongly about it um and I think I'm lucky in that a lot of my like close friends and and people around me have very similar views but then it's that classic thing that you have to widen the net and then you realize that actually there's loads of work to be done (laughs) Um, and it's important to kind of keep that in mind and yeah I try and kind of sort of constantly try and learn how I can be better more tolerant person and try and help the fight towards equality like there's um yeah weirdly like aspects of your life that end up highlighting things and and one of them's been like since I've been online dating it really opens your eyes to the fact that oh yeah there are loads of men that do not think that feminism's a thing that a man can be that's that's just so much work still to do (laughs) I have so many sort of conversations where they're just like oh yeah no but I'm a man so I can't be a feminist and you think oh okay okay we had a good run <laughs> well no so I actually also my friends are then just like oh so you must sort of end up having these sort of conversa- dead-end conversations and then I was like oh no I end up spending like a silly amount of time trying to to tell them like how how like I sort of end up in these conversations with people I'm obviously not going to date but sort of trying to be like oh here's the thing that you could think about like okay bye like <laughs> I sort of trying to well, it's quite a good calling card though conversations and I think that that's there's no point if we were to like you know it is there is no point unless you're going to try and so I try and have these conversations with people I have one the other day where I ended up in a conversation with someone who voted sort of very differently from me um but I was trying to genuinely just find out why and so because I wanted to know like mm-hmm. genuinely was really interested because I find it difficult to see perspective from that kind of perspective and I was really fascinated by it and thought I should probably learn why people voted in that way um so I tried to have this conversation about it and then he seemed to think that that I was basically saying uh, I don't know it was a difficult conversation but I think in the end it was beneficial to both of us so or hopefully it was I think that's an excellent calling card to have when you're dating. Be like, you know, one one way or another, this date will change your life. Whether it's because you'll find the woman of your dreams, aka me, or whether I will just make you into a feminist. Either way, it's gonna it's gonna change your life. I feel like that's a good calling card to have. Em. Thanks. It's a good one. Sometimes it tips over, and you realise you're spending a lot of your life educating 
men on the internet that you're not going to meet up with so you need to get the balance probably sure (laughs) sure yeah yeah there's a middle ground here maybe we'll find it one day Um, well I mean from me from behalf of me the listeners and all of the non-feminist men in the world thank you very much for this it's been an absolute joy you are the self-crowned queen of niche but also I think you deserve that title but it's so it's so wonderful you have really like knowing you has been such I mean this sounds like it's ending now as in like our friendship hopefully it's not but knowing you really have (laughs) this is the finale uh knowing you has been it's really been an eye-opener for so many things and just uh, keep keep doing things and keep teaching everyone about it I absolutely adore it thank you so much well thank you very much for listening to that episode of the enthusiast and co this is the bit where i tell you where you can find me um i am on instagram at theenthusiast.co on facebook forward slash the enthusiast co and on twitter at eleanor kime uh, k-i-m-e my website is theenthusiast.co if you're looking for my merch any more resources or my blog um, and you can sign up to my email newsletter there as well thank you so much for listening speak to you next time